0: We're going to be in a passage today. It's got. To, it's probably. It's the second easiest passage to find in the Bible. Revelation twenty-two. It's last chapter, last section of Revelation. So, depending on how your Bibles put together, it might actually be easier to find than Genesis chapter one, which I think is probably the easiest passage of the Bible to find. But uh, we, we began this study uh, back in September to highlight. The central doctrines, those essential doctrines that unite us as a local church, right so so we 're looking not at distinctives, not at at some of the the, the nuanced perspectives that we hold we 're looking at these essential doctrines that we gather around as a local church. We also recognize that they unite us to the broader church, like these doctrines, we would say, are essential teachings of the church. they may not all be required for salvation but they are the historical positions that the church has held throughout time. And we've sought not to get off into the weeds of, of secondary discussions and things like that. We will do some of that after the first of the year. We're going to be talking about uh, some, of, some of our different, different perspectives and distinctive views next year. Uh, but through this first part, we've been really studying the essentials or what we would say uh, the church has historically held that all Christians can agree on. Now, just because we are who we are, that doesn't necessarily mean that every person has agreed with everything, uh, but we've sought to be uh, honest to the text and the scripture. And if you have a disagreement, well, that's—I don't care if you're wrong; uh, it's on you, right? I'm just kidding. I do care if you're wrong. I want you to be right. I want you to—I want to I be right. Uh, anyway, today, let me let me keep going before I get off too far. Sorry. Today, today is a good day. We're going to wade into a subject, and I'm talking. We're just tipping our dipping our toe into a subject that has its own set of disagreements that are, uh, um, well, they're divisive in their own way. Jesus's return, right? The end of days. I don't think it's so divisive that it's caused a reformation. Like, no, no, nobody is reforming the church because of different views. Of the end days. I, I, I don't think it rose to the point where, you know, there was, there was a point where the reformers were gathering and they were talking about the sacraments and they demanded because they, they saw the sacraments, the, the Lord's Supper, communion, and baptism differently. I think it was Luther that actually said, We're of a different spirit because he took them so seriously. So I don't think it's raised to that level of division or tension in the church. And I don't think that there's necessarily been denominations that have been started because of their particular view. Of the end days, not within my knowledge. There are denominations that espouse a particular view, but they didn't necessarily start because of that view. Um, and, and 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 so it's not that it's so divisive or so explosively divisive that it's caused a lot of tension. But there certainly is tension. Certainly is disagreement. Certainly is a number of different views that you can hold on the end days. In fact, I think probably in the whole scheme of things, there's, there's probably more views and flavors of views in what's going to happen in the end days than any other of the doctrines of the church or that the, the church has held. So there's views of the millennium and that's whether Jesus will reign on the earth in a physical way or if whether it's spiritual. So there's a-mill, pre-mill, post-mill. When that period of time, if that period of time is real is spiritual, when it's going to happen. And even inside of those, there's different flavors of those. So for the pre-mill view, that there's a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, there's the classic or historical pre-mill view, and then there's the dispensational pre-mill view. And to just be fair and to be honest, I think that's where most of the real tension resides between dispensational premillennialism and other views of the millennium. Uh, It seems to me the other three will get along a little better. I don't know if that's really a fair assessment. It's just been my experience. <clears throat> but that typically, it's been my experience that the a, a dispensational perspective fights harder for their view than maybe the others do. Uh, again, I, I can show you why I believe that, but it's just, that's anecdotal. Views on the rapture. Whether every Christian, just so you know, every Christian holds to a rapture. But there's a whole lot of different ways we can look at it. Pre-trib rapture, mid-trib rapture, post-trib rapture, no-trib rapture. Like there's no great tribulation. We happen to be in the tribulation, but we're all going to be raptured out at a certain time. Is there going to be a, a rapture of the church before the tribulation or in the tribulation? That's, that's one of the views. Or is there going to be um, uh, a, a rapture of the church to meet Christ in the clouds, and that's just the end? You know, that, that's the question. That's the that's the arguments that happen. Views on the way prophecy is going to be fulfilled. And even the reading of Revelation, uh, there's preterists, like it all happened in the past. There's partial preterists. Some of it happened in the past. There's historists, which is still looking at it in a historical way, but not completely historical because there's three, three or four different flavors inside the historistic movement. I don't even know if that's really a word, but there's three or four different flavors of that. Is it spiritual? Is it literal? Or is it, is it uh, somewhere in between? It's, it's a mess. Or is all prophecy that's spoken of in the book of Revelation or all the prophecy that's not relating is specifically to Christ in his first advent still future? Like, is it all future? But what I want you to see is there's a lot to discuss, a lot to think about, a lot to wrestle with, a lot to consider. In fact, there's so many different views, I think it's hard to remember at times, that there's actually an essential view that Christians agree on. There is a a, a doctrine of the end of days that all Christians agree to. Jesus is coming back, (laughs) right? Like that's, that we can all land there. And no matter where you fall out on these other views, Jesus is coming back. And there's certain things that we would all agree is going to happen when he comes back. And that's really what we're going to study today. But but here's why it's, it's an important part, why it's part of our statement of faith and why we say all Christians must agree to this is because it's not just that Jesus has made the promise. He has. But the reality is, I would go so far as to say that if we do not land on this doctrine as a real and true doctrine that is yet to happen, we lose the gospel. The gospel is not that you got saved for this life. The gospel is that you are saved forever. Forever. Ever that there's going to be a new heaven and new earth to live in. And those two won't be separated, that God will be our God and we will be his people. The gospel certainly is that you were saved by believing in Jesus Christ, but the gospel is that you will be saved when Jesus returns. This is vital to our faith, not just to become a Christian, but to endure as Christians. You see, if we get rid of this teaching, then we essentially call Jesus a liar. He's the one that said, if I go, this is the night of his crucifixion, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to be with myself. If he is not returning, if he's not coming back, and our hope is only for this life, what hope do we have? So maybe you don't have to hold this to be a Christian, but you are missing out on the joy of living as a Christian in this day if you deny this. So that's what we're going to study. Revelation 22, verses 12 through 20 is where we're going to pull it from and, and, and look at it from. There's so many passages we could have picked. Um, I just thought it was nice to, let's read the end of the book. Let's read, see how the story ends. So here we are, Revelation 22, begin reading in verse 12. The Bible reads this way, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city "'By the gates. "'Outside are the dogs and sorcerers "'and the sexually immoral "'and the murderers and idolaters "'and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. "'I, Jesus, have sent my angel "'to testify to you about these things for the churches. "'I am the root and the descendant of David, "'the bright morning star.'" The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty, come, and let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful that my current day does not define my eternity. That the, the, the trouble I feel and face in this world is not what I will always endure And I am so grateful that that's not just true for me, but it's true for every one of your people. As you will send your son again to take us to be where you are. Help us now understand it. Help us to see it. Help us to take great joy in it. Help us to delight in saying, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Spirit move and work among us now. I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The first time I remember even considering or being bothered with or concerned about the, the end times is when my mom gave me a book called Left Behind. I don't know, you probably have seen that book. You may have watched the movie, which uh, I don't need to apologize for you for that, but the people who made it probably should. It was fine piece of cinema. But I was in a pretty bad place. Sorry. I was in a pretty bad place. My my walk with the Lord was not where it should have been, um, and it it was better than it had been. I was in a better spot, but I was I was still struggling pretty deeply. Uh, he had always been faithful, even when I hadn't been. And as I read that book, the very first one, I, I I read several of them. I didn't read the whole series. It took too long for them to to get them out, and my view changed. And I was like, finally, I was like. This is a good fiction, but I got other things to study. Um, now, not everybody thinks it is fiction, but not everybody holds it, that 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 view is inaccurate or different. Wouldn't hold a different view, but but I, I I had changed my view. But but as I read that first book, I remember thinking, I do not want to be left behind. Like I was scared. Now, I, I, as, I, as I mentioned, I, I don't still hold the view that, that is promoted, the dispensational premillennial view. I, I don't hold that view anymore. If you do, that's okay. I don't have a problem with that. Um, I don't know that my mom holds that view or ever held that view. I just know she gave me the book, and I know that the Lord used it. Even though I, I, I wouldn't suggest that, that that's, that's not how I would teach the end days, it, he still used it. He used it to make me think, this isn't all there is. I, I was in a place that was much my own making. I was not suffering at the, as a victim of other people's sin, although I was dealing with their sin. I had allowed the sin of the world around me to define how I would live, and I was pursuing very sinful things. And I was dealing with the consequences of those decisions. And the Lord had been faithful to me, keeping people in my path, getting the word, get in the word, get in the word. I'd finally begun to get in the word. And then I began to read this book, and it freaked me out. And he met me there. But quickly the fear I had of being left behind was, was changed. Because I saw him being so faithful that I knew that he would always be faithful. And the reality of the my the reality of my circumstances were. They didn't define me anymore. And that even though life was extremely difficult, even though that I was suffering under the weight of lots of different issues and struggling with lots of different things, they no longer defined me and I recognized I was living in a temporary set of circumstances. Paul calls them light and momentary afflictions that prepare us for the eternal weight of glory. See, I began to see myself no longer as someone who lived in the world, no longer who someone who was of the world, but was simply in the world, but it was not my home. I was a pilgrim passing through. I began to recognize that I wasn't someone who was a citizen of this world, that I was a citizen of an eternal kingdom, and that much of my struggle was because I wasn't there yet. But because of God's faithfulness, I knew I'd make it. You see, the reality of this doctrine, it's not about assigning a date and a time. It's not so that we can draw up our graphs and put up cool pictorials of of Jesus riding a horse with a sword hanging out out of his mouth. It's not intended for us to know all the details of God's plan so that finally we feel like we have some measure of control and comfort in the world because we know exactly what's going to happen. this doctrine is given to us exactly as it's given to us to call us to trust the God who not only saved us, but the one who will save us. He said he's coming back. We believe, we believe that Jesus will soon return as the righteous judge and eternal king to finish the work of our salvation. Essentially, if you boiled our view down, if you boil what this passage is teaching down, if you boil down all the views of the end days. This is the essential doctrine that we can all agree upon. We believe that Jesus will soon return as the righteous judge and eternal king to finish the work of our salvation. It's not necessary for you to know all the details. In fact, when Jesus was about to ascend after his resurrection, he'd spent 40 days with his disciples. And they come to him, meeting him on this this mountain. And and they say to him, "Is, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? This is Acts 1, 6, I think, is the the verse. It's, is now the time? He says, it's not for you to worry about the times and days. It's not for you to know the times and days, but to be my witnesses. So it's not God's intention that we know all the details. It's not God's intention that we have it all figured out. It says, it's God's intention that we walk faithfully knowing that He's coming. We know that He's serious about this because the amount of times the number of times that it's mentioned that the 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 emphasis that is given in the new testament well, in the scripture altogether in his book the foundations of the christian faith james montgomery boyce who uh, was a presbyterian theologian points out some statistics that i think just astonishing in the new testament christ's return is mentioned 318 times in 260 chapters Think about that. 318 times in 260 chapters. Now, I'll just go ahead and tell you, it's not mentioned in every chapter, so that means that it's mentioned a lot in some chapters. You think God wants us to hear this message? He isn't specific. He doesn't give us the specific number about the Old Testament books, but he does point out that the majority of the Old Testament prophecies, and I'd encourage you to go back and look at them, speaking about Jesus' return. They don't highlight and emphasize his first advent, but his second. And just a point of illustration, I think that would, would demonstrate this is true. Jerusalem was not looking for a suffering Savior. They were looking for a king to come and free them. Why do you think that is? Because their prophets were telling them of a king that was coming. Isaiah 53 seems pretty clear. But the vast majority of the prophecies of the Old Testament were referring about Jesus' final return when he makes all things new. Here's another one that he gave us. Christ's return is mentioned in every book of the New Testament except Galatians, 2nd, 3rd John, and Philemon. So, if you know 2nd, 3rd John and Philemon, they're all very, very short. There's almost, I mean, they're very personal letters, but, but Galatians, even Galatians, while it does express the gospel and the importance of the gospel, it's written for a very specific person to a very specific, or a very specific purpose to a very specific group of people. Jesus taught it regularly. The apostles came to him. You know why they came to him in Acts 1 and said hey, is now the time you're going to represent the kingdom or or to establish the kingdom, to give the kingdom back to Israel? Because he'd been teaching about it. In fact, we went through the book of Luke. It took us two and a half years to get through the book of Luke. And about Luke 9, at the end of Luke 9, as Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem, up to that point in Luke 1 through 4, we saw him being established as the son of God. In Luke 4-ish through 9, in the middle of 4 through 9, we begin to see him being established as the prophet. In fact, every time he's questioned about his identity, people speak of him as the prophet that was promised. In Luke 9, at the end of Luke 9, all the way through to the point that he enters into Jerusalem, he speaks of his kingdom over and over. In fact, the mass majority of his, the vast majority of his teaching in that section of Luke is about his kingdom that has come and is. Coming, so they are not surprised. The apostles and the followers of Christ are not surprised to see him being received in Jerusalem as a king. They were simply responding to his teaching that he had been making known as he taught all over the region because he knew that he was a coming king. Paul taught about it in all but one of his letters every, oh, I'm sorry, I guess it was Philemon as well, but, but in all but two of these letters, he, he makes sure. You know the reason why every Christian believes in a rapture? We don't agree on when it's going to happen, but we all believe in a rapture because he wrote to the Thessalonians, whew, he wrote to the Thessalonians that they, we would be caught up in the sky with Jesus Christ, that both the dead and the living would be raised and we'd be caught up in the sky with Jesus Christ. That's the teaching of the rapture. Peter, writing to the early church, the scattered suffering church, speaks to them of a living hope, referencing the coming of Christ and the day of their salvation. See, as we turn to the last book of the Bible, which is given to making sure we see that the end is coming, that the end is known and God has won. As we turn to this book of the Bible, the reality is that all of God's teaching has been priming us to see this point. Jesus is soon coming as the righteous judge, the eternal king to finish the work of our salvation. So let's walk through that statement. Let's just break that down a little bit. Jesus is coming soon. He says it. He says it himself. I am Coming. Verse 12, behold, I am coming soon. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. These these are Jesus' words speaking about what Jesus intends to do. He is coming to us. We expect his return because he said he's coming. Uh, the the thing is, is that this was every one of the New Testament writers, the New Testament church seemed to believe because of the use of the word "soon" that 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 meant any time now. They lived in a way that it was expecting Jesus to return at any moment. the 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 passage that we studied from First Peter, uh, I think it was two or three weeks ago, speaking about spiritual gifts. The the passage started First Peter four one. Verse 7, I think, it starts saying, the end of all things is at hand. Because he believes at any moment, the end of all things is at hand. And then he goes on to tell us about how we should live until that actually happens. Now then he turns around in in his second letter and and he recognizes, well, Jesus hasn't still come back, but, but look, here's the reality. And he writes this, 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10 says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, His point is God's timing isn't ours. Just think about this. I'm 47 years old and and I was just in the conversation the other day with with a guy who was, I think, in his uh, 60s about how fast this year went. We're already at Thanksgiving. To me, it's shocking that we're almost at the end of 2019, about to be 2020. It's been a blur. It seems like it's gone by so fast. He says to me, I don't know if this is true, this is what he says to me, it only speeds up, it's only going to get faster, it feels like it gets faster, the older you are, it feels like it's faster. I've been told that a number of times, I I guess when I get old, I'll I'll find out, we'll see, I'll let you know. But it got me thinking as I was thinking about this, a day is a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years like a day, our time frame isn't his time frame, you just think about this, he's lived for all eternity, all eternity for someone who's only lived a few years, a thousand years seems like a long, long time. In fact, the, as, as, as a much younger man, as a teenager, I can remember thinking, I mean, my whole life was, was less than a couple decades old. And gosh, that even seemed like a long time. Now here I am about to my fifth decade and thinking, a ah, decade's not as long as it used to be what's it like for a God who's existed forever to look at a clock ticking and think, you guys don't even know what you're talking about. A day? A thousand years? It's nothing. I'll be there when I get there. And it's soon. Are we there yet? Almost. 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 I know, some of you are thinking, I hope it happens before the end of the sermon. <laughs> Let's go. Hey, I'm with you. I am too. But here's the reality. So, so the word that's used in that passage, and it's used a number of times this way in other passages, it speaks more, less about a t- amount of time passing. So the Greek word translated as soon could just as easily be translated quickly, suddenly, or unexpectedly. The reality is that it could happen at any time. That's why Peter turns around and says, hey, it's going to be like a thief. It's going to happen in a roar. When it happens, it will happen. It'll be fast. It's going to be at the right time and it's going to happen soon. And that may be in not much time, but it may also be that when it happens, it's going to happen suddenly, unexpectedly. The point is this. You don't need to know. I don't need to know. No one needs to know. We, we know the one who does. In fact, we're called to trust the one who does. Our need to know is more about our desire for control, our desire to live without God, than a desire to be dependent upon God. But all these guys running around making up charts, it's not because they figured it out in some code in the Bible. It's because they think they know better than God himself. When Jesus said, I don't know the times and dates, that's for the Father, we, 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 we can't comprehend that. I was just having this conversation outside the, the room. We, we, we can't comprehend how that functions inside of a Trinitarian God when they're all God, fully God. How does that work? Well, I don't know. But it works. Jesus said, the Father knows and he doesn't. So if he doesn't know, you can be sure that there's no guy standing on a stage with a big chart that knows. Here's what you do know. The God who said, I am coming soon. The son who said, I am coming soon is faithful and trustworthy. He will not miss his people. If he is faithful and able to save you in this day, he is faithful and able to save you in that day. There is no reason to worry. We can trust him. Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is the righteous judge. Now, we often get fixated on Jesus as the Savior, you know, the suffering Savior. And and I don't want to diminish that. I don't want to dismiss that. I don't want to throw that out. Like, that is vital to who we are as believers. He suffered in our place for our sin. And now He is sitting. He is risen. He is ascended. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. That's a beautiful picture. But the scriptures paint another picture of him that we cannot dismiss. On the day of judgment, there will not be some other person sitting in that seat. The one who has made you innocent is the one who will stand as your judge. This is what Jesus says. Look at it, verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what. He has done. He is the one who will pay us for our works. And the idea here, this idea of recompense, could be reward and it could be condemnation. It could be judgment. It's good or bad. It's what we deserve. It is a wage. He is the righteous judge. And it shows us in this verse, everyone will be raised and everyone will be Judged. Now the resurrection portion is implied. I I would draw that from a number of different verses. I'll read you a couple in just a second. But clearly each one will be judged. Each one will get what they have coming to him. And John five, twenty eight through twenty-nine. I don't think these verses are on the screen. I can't remember when I decided to use them. But John 5, 28 through 29 says this, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Everyone who is dead, everyone is going to rise. Everyone is going to be resurrected, and some will be raised, and they will go into eternal life, and some will be raised, and they will go into eternal judgment, or condemnation. He is bringing good and bad. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is a book written to Christians, even if they were a messed up group of Christians. (laughs) I mean, who are we, right? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Over and over, there's two things emphasized as we think at, look at Jesus coming as judge. There's two outcomes, and it's dependent upon what we do in this life. Two outcomes of Jesus' judgment. We see it specified here as well. Blessed are those who wash their robes. This is verse 14. So he says, I'm coming to bring recompense. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. That's a reference all the way back to the Garden of Eden when sin remove their right to the tree of life. When God blocked it off, he's going to give it back to people so that they might have the right to the tree of life and then they may enter the city by its gates. That's the new Jerusalem that's referred to in, Je- in Revelation 21. There's this idea that now we get to come in and, and enjoy all the benefits and blessings of eternal life. Outside, so outside the city is the imagery being used here. Verse 15, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral, murders, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So if you're sexually immoral, it's no different than being an idolater. It's no different than being a person who just sits around and lies all the time. I want to be careful. I want to be cautious here. I want you to see what what he's talking about is, is an identity. Not that we would confess those things as sin and then just walk in them or still struggle with them. These are people who don't recognize the sinfulness of them. They identify in them. And dogs, just as another note, dogs is not saying that no, there, there aren't animals in heaven. Like, I don't say dogs go to heaven, all dogs go to heaven. That's a crazy movie. But uh, th- this is not saying that dogs are excluded either. This is just simply saying that it's imagery. Dogs is a, is a reference to evildoers, people who do evil things. So, so outside of the dog, sorcerer. So there's two outcomes, again, specified in this passage. We have heaven and hell. Just so that we get them, just so that we hear it, just so that we understand it. I want to just give you some biblical views of how or what the Bible says about these places. Hell is a real place of torment. It, it, it is a real, literal place. Don't listen to any teacher that would say it's not. This, this is what this is teaching. Revelation is teaching this. Our view of the end must take this into account. It is a real, literal place that's going to be horrific to be. Speaks of it in, as a place with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13, 41 through 42, the son of man will send his angels. They will gather out his kingdom, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth. I recently saw a video, I saw this a few weeks ago and watched it again last night because it was on my mind. I saw a video of R.C. Sproul describing this idea of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It talked about two different types of people who will be in hell. People who are weeping who were mourning the fact they'd heard all their life, repent, turn to Christ and be saved. They might've even approached Christ at that last day and said, Lord, Lord, look at all I have done for you. And he said, I do not know you, depart from me. And they are weeping. In fact, R.C. Sproul calls out, I, I'll, I'll put this on Realm later this week. I'll post it on Realm so you guys can see it. <clears throat> he speaks about this weeping that they will, they will have, not have enough tears in their eyes to weep the amount that they will weep for all eternity, mourning the fact that they are suffering in hell. And then the people who are gnashing teeth, a picture of anger in the scriptures he points out are people who are acting in fury against God. Who are you to send me here? What did I do to deserve this? You have no right over me, and yet they are forced to submit to his authority a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of undying worm and unquenchable fire. Mark 9, 47 And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and fire is not quenched. Now, I, I just, just saw this, just noticed it. All the times I've read this, I just saw something. Where their worm... That's not a place there. That's a possessive there. Where the person's worm never dies and the fire that they are burning in is never quenched. I don't understand. I, I, I it just, oh gosh. This isn't a place where worms eat and fire burns. This is a person experiencing it. Revelation twenty fourteen through 15 describes it as a lake of fire. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the, light, light, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Th- this, this is not just about being outside of a city wall and being unprotected by the ones inside the city. This is about being cast out and not belonging and being thrown into a place of eternal and utter torment. You think it's bad today. You think the things that we experience today, the difficulties that we face today, the suffering that we endure today, I I don't know the exponential number. But that's the picture the Bible gives us. And and I think, whether these are literal or figurative, I I think the point is that it's difficult for us to even fully imagine or comprehend a place with no joy, no hope, no blessing at all, only condemnation and only judgment, uh, probably beyond the degree that we can fathom or imagine. But when Jesus comes as judge, the one who's done the work to save and the one who has saved so many will give some people this very thing on the other hand there's there's heaven there's the blessing blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life there's eternal life in that there's there's an entrance into the city he says the Bible speaks of heaven in this way. We don't have to go very far. In Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw the new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, look, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God Himself would be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear, not some tears, every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. All of the futility of sin will be removed. And all the futility that even the created place, the created world endures because of our sin will be removed. Do you think the Rockies are beautiful today? I, I, I mean, I was just in the Andes and it was absolutely breathtaking. Everywhere I looked, some majestic mountains raising into the sky, snow uh, capped peaks, just beautiful. It moved every time I turned around. And these mountains melt like wax before the Lord. And it's going to, it it doesn't even come close to the beauty of what we will experience. The the most joyous moment will look dull and drab compared to the joy that we experience there. Because the, the mourning and the crying and the pain that comes from our sin and the sin of others is gone. No more tears, no more death, no more mourning. Only jubilation, only celebration. But don't miss this, brothers and sisters. The the thing that makes us so good is, is not just what we get to experience, but the very fact that God is with man. This God who said, let there be light, who planted a tree of life in the garden, who breathed life into the man, who formed the woman out of his rib, the God who killed his own son so that we could know him, have relationship with him, that God is no longer going to be distant and separated by dim glass. He is going to be right in front of us. Our Redeemer lives, Job says. My Redeemer lives. In the end, I will stand in my flesh, standing here in my two feet, and I will see him with my own eyes, no longer distant, no longer struggling with the doubt is this all real? Yeah, he's there. He, he will be right there. And where Adam and Eve got to walk with him in the cool of the garden, we will get to enter his city where there is no need for sun because the sun is the light. The one and only begotten sun is the light. Now tell me, what is desirable here? Which one is more desirable? He didn't tell us these things simply to scare us. He's warning us. And that's what he tells us. I'm warning you. I'm sending my angel to make sure that people hear it. Be ready because I'm coming soon. Jesus is coming. And when he comes, he is no longer going to be a suffering savior. He is going to be a righteous Judge, and he will give to each what they are due. Now, let's just deal with that real quickly. Just, just, just talk about this for a second. Every one of us will be raised, and every one of us will be judged. Everyone will experience one of two outcomes at the result of that judgment. What in the world does that mean? I thought salvation was free. In fact, we just studied a few weeks ago that salvation, God saves people. We don't earn it by our good works. What, what in the world is going on? But we are judged, Certainly. But brothers and sisters, as Christians, when we stand in judgment, we will not be judged on the works of our flesh. We will be judged on the works that God has produced in us by His Spirit. You think about this. Just think with me for just a second. James, when he's writing in James chapter 2, he tells us that saving faith produces works. In fact, faith that doesn't work is dead. It's fruitless. It doesn't do anything, right? That's what he teaches us. There's good works that come out of some, someone believing that Jesus Christ has saved us. When Paul teaches that, he is, that, that that we have been saved by grace through faith, this not of yourself that no one can boast, he emphasizes the fact that salvation is a free gift of God's grace. But we have to keep that in context because immediately after saying that, he says in verse, Ephesians 2 verse 10, You are created in Christ. You are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. If you have been saved by God's free grace, you will not be judged on the the works of your flesh. He will stand and he will say, look at what the Spirit has done in you. Come in and rest, my faithful servant. Even your day of judgment is an act of God's grace to you. He has made you, by His Spirit, able to deserve to hear those words. In Christ, through Christ, because of Christ and the power of His Holy Spirit at work in you, if you are a living, regenerate being. If you are a child of God, you do not have to fear judgment because even that day in his grace, he will not condemn your works of the flesh. He will highlight the works of the spirit in you and he will reward you with access to the tree of life and entrance into his city. This is how your judgment will work. It's not a reason to run and be afraid. It's a reason to be excited but to but to hear Paul or Peter's words in, in his second letter, to say, okay, well, do everything you can then to affirm your calling, to affirm your election, to, to, to hear Paul's words to the Philippian church where he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Don't sit as a bump on a log thinking, oh, judgment day will take care of itself. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works in you to will and to work. If God is at work in you, live like it, Be active in seeing your robes purified. Pursue it. Live as if the day of judgment is approaching so that when it comes, you're not one who is saved as through fire, just barely by the skin of your teeth, but who celebrates along with all of heaven what God has made you able to do. Brothers and sisters, we'll be judged. As Christians, that is not a reason to fear this doctrine or ignore this doctrine, but to celebrate this doctrine. Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is the righteous judge. Jesus is the eternal king. Here we go. Uh, Look again. He comes to verse uh, 17. The Spirit says, "Or I'm sorry, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angels to testify about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. He is suggesting, he's not just suggesting, he's saying, I am the offspring of David. I am the one who was promised, the eternal King who is going to reign, whose kingdom is eternal. There is so much going on around us today. So much going on in the news. And, 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 and even as the vote approaches next year, people scream, screaming and crying about, oh man, America's going, we're going to lose it. We are. But not because somebody gets elected to the White House, but because there's no eternal kingdom but one. There's no eternal ruler but one. Jesus is the eternal king. No one is not going to have to answer to his authority. That may be a double... No, I think that works. Everyone will answer to his authority. Everyone. You don't have to agree with God for him to be God. You don't have to submit to God for him to become God. He is God. Period. End of story. Everyone is subject to him. To the Philippian church, Paul writes that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord Oh, the angel has come and made this revelation known. He's come and told us about this so that we can know. And so when we bow and confess, it's not too late. We will submit to his authority one way or the other at some point. We will experience his condemnation, or we will be gifted access to the tree of life. And he's the one who gets to say, because he's the king of this eternal kingdom. And whatever he gives you will last forever. Jesus' people, then, what do we do? Because all that's in this verse is not just about Jesus, it's certainly clearly talking about how we respond. Jesus' people wait expectantly. This is really good news. For everyone who is saved, for everyone who knows Christ, for everyone who has come to know him and trust him and see him as faithful, to, to know them as their sa- to know him as their savior, this is really good news. there's no reason to fear it. there's no reason to cower, there's no reason to run away. there's no reason to ignore this stuff, there's no reason to put it aside and think, "Oh well, we'll deal with that another day. This is vital for us. It is really good news. Jesus is coming to get his kids. His bride, God the Father sending Jesus to get his kids. And specifically, it calls us to invite the world to come. Verse 17, along with the Spirit, the Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price you know, originally, as, as I looked at this, I thought because of the last verse, I'm thinking, well, that's the people saying to Jesus, come, like we're inviting Jesus. But then as I studied it and got into it, I realized that this is an actual invitation to the world, come. The one who is thirsty, let him come. This is us standing with the Spirit calling out to the world, come. The the angels come to testify about these things because they need to be known. People need to hear that there is an end coming, that there is a day. I don't don't think that means we stand out on a street corner with a sandwich board and just sit there silently. The end is at hand. But I do think that we have to find a way in which we boldly go as witnesses into the world to invite the world to come to Jesus, to come and find access to the tree of life and entrance into the city. Invite them to come. And we talked about that last week. I won't go any further on that. I would encourage you last just just go back to last week's message about God sending His people. If you have a question about what that looks like, that's one of the primary reasons we're here is to call them to come. But not only are we looking at the world and inviting them to come, the the intent of this passage is to be an encouragement and a blessing. To one another. John wrote this. In in fact he wrote this book. And it it, it opens. Revelations 1.3. It opens with a a, a blessing. Oh I've got it written. I don't know. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. Revelation wasn't given to us to debate over and cause confusion. It was given to us as a blessing to know. As a blessing to hold. As a blessing to hear. There's a blessing from God to his people, for his people to know. He wins. You can trust him. This is a blessing to us. The writer of Hebrews who's writing to a a, a Jewish church that is is in some ways losing their moorings and and beginning to to go adrift and it looks like they might even be becoming apostate and he's concerned about them. He comes to this conclusion in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 that this is a reason for us to encourage one another. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. How how, how often do we even really slow down and think about this? Every second, we're nearer the end than we were before. Tomorrow, you will be nearer the end. The the, the day will be nearer to you than it is today. How many of us stop and consider how desperately we need to be reminded of that, to be encouraged with that? How, How many of us in the midst of very difficult circumstances just want somebody to pat us on their back and just weep and mourn with us? When what we need is somebody to weep and weep with those who weep, you know, that we, we need that. But also to be reminded, this is just temporary. This is a light and momentary affliction that is preparing you for an eternal weight of glory. You're not forgotten in this. God's just making you ready to meet him face to face. So purify your robes because there's a day you're going to get to go in and eat from the tree of life, that you're going to get to walk into the city of God, and you are going to see him with your own eyes. We, we need to be telling this to one another. We need to be blessing each other with this doctrine, with this truth. And finally, if we can learn anything from this, it's to agree with Jesus we want him to come. Behold, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. See, it's not a call to think about the end and oh man, I got so much to do. Let me get my bucket list out and just make sure I get it all done. Now, this is this is a, a time for us to sit. In in agreement with, to stand under the, the, the truth that Jesus has given us, and say yes. At the right time, when you are ready, I want you to come. Because I know that's the day that I've been saved for. I know that's the day that you will call me into enjoying your presence completely. That's the day I'll get get to eat the fruit of that tree of life. That's the day. That the new dawn uh, uh, appears and that light will never set. Never a moment of darkness, never a moment of division, never a moment of pain, never a moment of suffering. And every day from here on out, I will be with God. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I don't know. Exactly where you sit and where you stand with all the nuanced views, all the different perspectives. Maybe you don't even consider it. Maybe you've never thought about it. It's going to happen. We believe it. We teach it. And I hope that you'll be encouraged by it. If you're sitting in this room and you feel any ounce of fear over this day and you're concerned, oh my gosh, I'm going to face judgment I don't want you to sit there in silence. I don't want you to sit there in fear. I want you to let me know so that I or one of the other pastors or some leader can walk beside you and seek to see you grow in the knowledge of the faithfulness of our Savior. And maybe even work out, maybe just work out that you've never trusted him. Maybe just work out that you've trusted him but you're not maturing in him. Maybe just work out that you have every reason to celebrate because when he comes, you'll have every blessing given to you. Please don't sit here nervous or scared. Don't leave out of this place today concerned that you may walk into, that you may be sent into hell. You don't need to be. He gave us this revelation to prepare us to meet him. So let me encourage you to do that. Let's pray.